So as I mentioned before, and I probably explained to some of you on Friday or early this morning, my wife and I, after nearly 40 years in Denver, uh, in second week of February, moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That was a long story there. I won't bother you with the details. Uh, I would say we got lucky. You normally wouldn't move to South Dakota in the middle of February. That's just asking for trouble. But we got lucky. The weather was good, and it went off without a hitch. About a month later, my sister and her husband had been down in Arizona seeing some relatives. They were driving back to Wisconsin. They stopped in for a visit. And we took them to as good as it gets in South Dakota, the Corn Palace. I'd never been there. But if I'm going to be a resident of South Dakota, I better know what this Corn Palace thing is, right? So, so we went to the Corn Palace. And not only did we see the Corn Palace, we got to see downtown Mitchell, South Dakota. Some of you have been there. So we went into a few shops, I don't know, three or four restaurants, something like that. And there was this one place, I don't know what to call it. It was kind of a combination curio shop, antique shop, weird food shop, costumes, odd clothing, a little bit of everything kind of shop. They catered to local junk dealers, local junk buyers, and then tourists like us. And in the uh, corner, there were greeting cards. And I don't know what other term to use other than to say they were odd. They were odd. I don't think you'd find these at Walgreens or at a Hallmark store. These, these were odd greeting cards. One of them features a guy. He's in a hospital bed. I don't know that this is supposed to be something that you would send to somebody who's recovering or in the hospital. But uh, the caption on the card went something like this. Tell the scientists to hurry up. I don't want to die before they discover the cure. Who, who would send a... I don't know. That, that's a greeting card. Okay, another one is only slightly less depressing. It's got a picture of a guy on the front. He's jogging, and the caption goes something like this. I'm trying to stay in shape for as long as I can until I can figure out why I'm actually on the earth. This is not uplifting, <laughs> is it? Is it? But, but I think that it's, uh, it speaks a bit of a truthiness there, doesn't it? But, uh, we're not sure what to do with the aging process, and we certainly are not sure what to do with death in this culture. We, we tend to hide it. Uh, we've got these communities for 55 and over, and I'm in that age, and I, there's something appealing about that to me. I, they seem to be quieter. But uh, we get removed from the noise, and those that make the noise are happy to have us removed there. And it's simply acknowledging there's an aging process, right? And life changes, and you want to be in a 55 and over community. Or we've got homes for the aged, and we don't even call them that anymore because it wouldn't be politically correct to do so. So we've got nicer names for those, Peaceful Valley or something like that. We've got homes like that, and, and then we've got hospitals where we hide the, the sickness and, and the death, and then ultimately we have a hospice. And even the funeral homes seem to be much more or much less pronounced nowadays than they were. They're almost hidden more. Cemeteries are rarely used because 80% of funerals are handled with uh, incineration of the body, right? And people don't go to funerals like they do. And, and, and on and on it goes. We simply do not handle death well, nor do we even talk about the subject of death. The greeting cards say so. Our own conversations would suggest as much. And I think all of you to some degree would agree with what I'm saying and understand what I'm saying. The culture lives in denial, 
or simply refuses to talk about the subject altogether. How different from the biblical approach in which it is explained in rather stark terms and with an open set of words. God simply says, this is the way it is. You were placed on my planet originally so that we could interact, and that was eternity, in a sense, what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. God came walking in the cool of the day and apparently interacted with them on a regular basis. That, that is eternity. There was no sin. There was perfection. They had it right there with them. And yet they chose to live otherwise in the way God had instructed. Sin came into the world. Death is a result of sin. God explains it that way. And he says whether it's a death such as Moses realized, where he was simply buried on the mountain by God, or Enoch who was taken to heaven, and we're not told how, or, or it's a painful, prolonged death that is God's way of transitioning us out of a fallen place into the perfection and the eternity that he always had in mind, where we would see him face to face. That is death described according to the scriptures. And the chief proof of it, the gigantic object lesson, if you will, for children of faith, that's all of us, not these 12 or 13 kids who are seated here, but for all of us, the object lesson is the resurrection of Christ. To, to be in a tomb, by Jewish count, three days. We would call it two and a quarter days. The Jews, any part of a day is a full day. So three days, he's in the tomb, and then he comes out. And that is God's way of saying, there's not just the possibility of an afterlife. I guarantee an afterlife that is pleasant and endless. So let's talk openly about why that resurrection needed to occur and what God is communicating to us with the resurrection of Christ. It is saying, first of all, that if you're afraid to death and to die, if you're afraid of it, that in a sense is a good thing. You should be somewhat afraid of death as we stand before God who gave us life on the planet in the first place. Now, you might be here for a variety of reasons this morning, uh, maybe you came because Sunday morning, this is what you always do. Maybe you came because, uh, well, I, I can't get here always, but uh, I for sure was going to try and get here on Easter Sunday. Maybe you're a visitor here today. Shame on me. I don't know who the regular members are and who, who might be visiting here. I simply don't know. I'm a visitor myself. I don't know all the reasons. Uh, what I do know is, is that in the parish where I spent 23 years helping start a church and sticking around for 23 years, I would hear a variety of reasons on, on Easter Sunday as to why people came, including the people who showed up five or six years in a row just down the street from the church, down the green belt. They found me that first time they came, and they told me straight up why they came, and they didn't want any follow-up letters or visits or anything. They said, we don't come over on Christmas, but we do come on Easter because you have a great breakfast. <laughs> now, there might have been other people who did that. I'd never been told that straight up. We're not sure we believed anything, but they would come to worship, they would listen, uh, and then they would stick around for breakfast and said, thank you, see you next year. I, I trust some of your ideals are a little bit nobler as to why you might be here today. Perhaps you came to keep your spouse or your parents or somebody happy. 
Perhaps you became because this is your routine. Perhaps you would say, I can't get here every Sunday, but for sure I'm going to get there on Easter. But in the midst of all the rationale and the excuses, I'm going to suggest to you, whether conscious or not, you came in part because you're afraid to die. And that's a good thing. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. The soul that sins will die. And you can finish this one for me if I start for you. The wages of sin is death. Add this verse, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We know that inherently. Natural law, natural condemnation, we know it inherently. And yet we work around it. Francis Bacon, long dead English influential writer, said, men fear death like children fear the dark. A much less insightful, God-fearing person, Woody Allen, put it this way, I'm not really scared of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens to me. That's what we do. We acknowledge it's fearful, and yet we attempt to work around it. We're afraid of it, and rightly so. Enter Jesus. None of this namby-pamby business about Christ came into the world to lay down his life for the marginalized and the disenfranchised. None of this stuff about, well, he was a superhero or or a hero on a soap opera that for sure he was dead until he wasn't, right? None of that craziness. None of this stuff that he was simply a role model. He wasn't part of role model, but that's not exclusively why the Christ was here, to show us how to die correctly. He dies to assure us that he is fully human, just as we are. Deliberately underwent the same fate as we've faced, and yet came out of the grave. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose to address the essential, fundamental, most terrifying aspect of our existence, that we too will die. Simple as that. Biblical. Second part of this, the other verse would suggest that in Christ there is, after all, no fear. We need to understand the background of the church at Corinth. So just flash back with me to what Paul did on his second missionary journey as he trips around Asia Minor, is what we would call it today, or where Asia meets Europe. He goes to influential cities, some places he finds believers, some places he finds Jewish people who are at least curious about Jesus. Irregardless, he tells them the truth about Jesus, and churches are raised up. So in this cesspool of humanity, there was an old saying in the ancient world, not for every person is a trip to Corinth. This is where culture, most of it racy, met culture. Think of Paris, San Francisco, and Amsterdam all rolled into one. That was Corinth. And in the middle of that cesspool of humanity, St. Paul finds a few believers. 
those who are familiar with what we call the Old Testament and the promise of the Messiah, and some of whom may have even heard that Jesus was in fact claiming to be the Messiah. And a church gets started, and he sticks around for a while. We're not sure how long. It wasn't Ephesus where he spent nearly two years. Think in terms of weeks or months, but things got going, and they were going pretty well, and so Paul says, I can go on to the next town now. I appoint some elders, stick with these truths I've taught you, and you'll be fine. Until it wasn't fine. It's a Greek culture, and the Greeks, above all else, valued logic. And it wasn't logical to say God became human. It wasn't logical to say one person lived for all. And it wasn't logical to say somebody who was dead became alive. That's not logical. So Paul addresses that in the first part of this letter. And then there's this just string of other issues that arose. I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Andrew. I follow Paul. I follow Silas. Well, I follow Jesus. Tension in the congregation. I got my favorite pastor. If he's not here, then I'm not here. That, that garbage was going on 2,000 years ago in some of the first churches that were founded. And, and then you peel back the onion a little further, and they're arguing about worship, and they're arguing about communion. What is it up there? And some of them are getting drunk because they had their potlucks before the, the church service. And what did you serve? Not the water. The water was crappy. You, you served wine. And so they're hammered and they're going to communion. All right? That's going on. And then they're arguing about sexuality. Some of them said, you know, we buy into all of Christianity. We're just not sure about sexual morality. We're going to keep some of our Greek practices. That's okay. Everybody said, yeah, that's okay. And so that's going on in the congregation. And on and on the list goes. And that's why Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthian church. And the kicker, the one that gets the longest statements from Paul, the longest chapter is chapter 15. Apparently, in the midst of all this truth and these rumors about Jesus paying for the sins of the world and that there's eternal life, which they had bought into happily, well, now somebody in the church died. Now what? Where's God now? Where's forgiveness? Where's eternal life? How come they're not raised to dead like Jesus supposedly was? And that's why he writes that 15th chapter. All was supposedly well, but now they're asking, now what? An example from 20th century American culture. The poet's name, the writer's name is William Saroyan. You ever heard of him? Saroyan? Wrote essays, short stories primarily, also wrote a novel. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1940. He refused the Pulitzer Prize. That's not just a trophy, there's a check. If you've been trying to make your living as an author, and now you get a big check because you're the best writer in the world by the judges for that year, and you refuse it, that's a little bit nuts. But that's what Saroyan did. I don't want money influencing my art. Keep your money. He goes into relative obscurity for the remaining 41 years of his life after refusing that check in 1940. He continues to write, but he never has the commercial success. He's never held in such high regard as he was when they re awarded him the Pulitzer Prize. 
He rarely, rarely, if ever, will give an interview. People try to hunt him down and get an answer. Why did you do that? Why did your writing change? Where are you? He hardly ever gave an interview. And then in 1981, he gives an interview on his terms. The Associated Press doesn't find him. He finds them. He places a phone call. And here's what he said. Everybody has got to die. But I've always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? And he hung up the phone. I think some of us have had similar thoughts. Right? Everybody's got to die. I know that's true, but I thought that I would be an exceptional case. And maybe I just go, get to go to heaven in a chariot of fire like Elijah. Now what? Now, now what's the question? And, and, and we can apply it to our lives here today. You've seen the pictures from Ukraine, haven't you? Following the news, it's horrible. Now, I know there's crime in Milwaukee, and there's crime in Baltimore, and there's crime in all of our big cities, and there's shootings, and there's death, but not like what you see in Ukraine. War could happen here, and it's in our streets. What if instead of the shootings that occurred in South Carolina yesterday, another mass shooting, I haven't heard if anybody died, but apparently 12 people were injured in a very prominent, peaceful section of town, a shopping area? What if that happened in Baltimore? Or what if, instead of coming here this morning to hear about the resurrection, to look at the pretty flowers, to enjoy some snacks afterward, and to enjoy a beautiful day in Maryland, you're coming here knowing that, like William Saroyan, you got four-stage cancer. You're asking the question, now what? And with good reason, you ask the question, because death is fearful. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? So death would appear to have victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Death does have a sting to it. What, what is the victory of death? It's the fact that the devil uses death to mess with our consciences, especially so, I believe, as we near the end of our life. And all the skeletons come out of the closet from 60 years ago, and you still can't get rid of the guilt. And if you're not that old, you can remember skeletons in your closet from five days ago. Think of those. And they don't go away. That's the victory that the devil thinks he has. The sting of death? God has the final say. There's nothing you can hide from him. And all the dirty laundry is there in full display, and he looks at it. And that stings. Enter Jesus, miracle of miracles. And that's how he ends this chapter, addressing this issue of human frailty and human death with this beautiful brief verse that you and I call 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only God, he is human and experienced everything that we do, including death. Jesus wasn't just perfect for himself. He was perfect for you. Be you 3 or 33 or 83. His life counts for years. It is perfection. Jesus didn't just suffer death on a cross. He suffered hell. We talked about that rather clearly 36 hours ago in your Good Friday service. What had happened when he suffered hell on the cross? 
That was so that you and I would never have to experience hell. And Jesus doesn't just come out of the grave as a way of saying, hmm, I triumph for myself. I'm going back to heaven now. He comes out of the grave to say, Mary, Peter, Thomas, you ornery little doubter, this is for you too. And for us too. Easter is not a time to say, life is returned, the flowers are out. That, that's spring. Easter is not a time to say, we remember Jesus' greatest miracle, that he raised himself from the dead. Easter is a time to say that, but then to also say, like the Lord, fully assured that sins are forgiven, we can say in our last moment, Lord, receive my spirit. We can die without fear. Because the Lord Christ has indeed assured us there is life after death, a very pleasant and eternal life. He is risen.